Well, good morning, everyone. Before I uh, jump into our subject, I just want to say to you, Middle East expert Tom Doyle and I will be leading a wonderful 12-day trip, a Wheaton Bible Church trip to the seven churches talked about in Revelation next to April, that is April 2016, and we would love for you to join us. Like our Israel trips that we have done in the past, uh, this trip will be uh, life-changing spiritually. It'll be a great way to develop relationships with people here at Wheaton Bible Church that you don't even know yet. It'll be a great way to dive into God's Word, and to see what the Bible has to say um, about a lot of different subjects, including what's happening in the Middle East and this geopolitical crisis that, that we're facing today. So there's information in your worship folder on this trip. You can go to our uh, website, look for study tour, or you could talk to Donna Stone, who will be back at the information desk um, following this service, and she will be glad to answer any of your questions, including helping you get over your fear of traveling to Turkey. Now we come to our subject today, this light, easy, highly unifying subject of homosexuality. <laughs> and we want to look at what the Bible has to say. There's a young British pastor by the name of Sam Alberry, who has written a, a, a wonderful and little book I highly recommend entitled, Is God Anti-Gay? In the book, uh, Sam talks about coming to the end of his high school years and realizing that he was, in fact, gay. It was an unwelcome development for Sam. It was not something that he chose. It wasn't something he wanted. He wanted to be just like his buddies, just like his friends. He wanted to have feelings for girls, but he didn't. And about the same time this realization was going on, uh, Sam met for the very first time in his life some Christians. And over a period of time, he came to Jesus Christ. Because he discovered that the message of Jesus Christ was very different than what he had imagined as a kid growing up in England. He discovered that, that Jesus didn't take humanity and divide it into separate categories and then tailor different messages to each category, like Jew or Gentile, or a message for the righteous or the uh, religious Pharisees, and a, a, another different message for the irreligious tax collectors or adulterers, or, or for that matter, one message for data-heavy left-brainers another for the creative right-brainers. He was uh, stunned to discover that what Jesus preached over and over was one message, repent and believe. And that was the same message to all comers, Jew, Gentile, self-righteous, unrighteous, and for Sam, gay and straight. And he was just so surprised, so stunned to, to realize for the last 2,000 years in the history of the church, it's been the same message with the same invitation to find the same forgiveness and eternal life, the same fullness of life through the same death, resurrection, 
of Jesus Christ. And that message is for everyone. Now that gospel message changed Sam Alberry's life. But his same-sex attractions didn't go away. So his book is his story of someone who is deeply committed to Christ. He's a pastor who is choosing to live a celibate, single life in obedience to Jesus while struggling with same-sex attraction. Just like others struggle with opposite-sex attraction or lust or greed or or pride or self-centeredness. Now, here's a long quote from his book, but I really like it, and it really helps set up where we're going. He writes, as someone who lives with homosexuality, I found biblical Christianity to be a wonderful source of comfort and joy. God's word to me on this issue at times feels confusing and difficult, but it is nevertheless deeply and profoundly good. The gospel of Jesus is wonderful news for someone who experiences same-sex attraction. In Western culture today, the obvious term for someone with homosexual feelings is gay. But in my experience, this often refers to something far more than someone's sexual orientation. It has come to describe an identity and a lifestyle. When someone says they're gay, or for that matter, lesbian, bisexual, They normally mean that as well as being attracted to someone of the same gender, their sexual preference is one of the fundamental ways in which they see themselves. And it's for this reason that I tend to avoid using the term. It sounds clunky to describe myself as someone who experiences same-sex attraction, but describing myself like this is a way for me to recognize that the kind of sexual attractions I experience are not, not, not fundamental to my identity. They are a part of what I feel, but are not who I am in a fundamental sense. I am far more than my sexuality. Now what he's saying is profound. And lays a groundwork for where we're going. He is not saying, I repeat, he is not saying you can believe in Jesus and live a homosexual lifestyle, as some Christians today wrongly assert. I'll get to that. Instead, what he is saying is, I have these attractions. I have these feelings, these desires. I don't want these attractions. I didn't choose them, but they are not central to who I am as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I will not act upon them because the Bible is clear, homosexual practice is sin. Now let me back up for a minute and put this in a larger context, a discipleship context, the discipleship context of the New Testament. So grab your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 8. The second gospel is Mark, Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. And Mark records this, Then he, that is Jesus, called the crowd to him, along with the disciples, and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross 
and follow me. Now this is one of the most important statements in the New Testament on discipleship. You want to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ? This is it. It's one of the most important statements in the New Testament on spiritual formation. It's one of the most important statements in the New Testament on marriage, on singleness, on parenting. If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus had a fondness for saying hard things. This is a really, really hard thing. Because Jesus is telling us, telling everyone, it's not enough to simply say you believe, uh, attend church uh, when it's convenient, but rather what it means uh, to walk with Jesus is you die to yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow him whenever, wherever. In other words, all followers of Jesus Christ are to deny all their sinful attractions, desires, all the time. Heterosexual, same sex, attractions for money, fame, power, self-glory. And what Sam Alberry realized is what Jesus Christ is calling him to do, Jesus is calling every single one of us to do. We all have disordered desires. This is not a homosexual problem, it is a human problem. It's sin. <laughs> so let's think about what Jesus is saying. Denying yourself means saying no to your deepest sense of who you are. It means you say no to that. It, it means you deny your deepest desires for the sake of Jesus Christ. Taking up the cross means declaring your life over forfeit. It's laying down your life for the very reason that your life is not yours to begin with. It belongs to Jesus. So you follow him. Hard words. Now look at what Alberry says. Ever since I've been open about my own experiences of homosexuality, a number of Christians have said something like that. The gospel must be harder for you than it is for me as though I have more to give up than they do. But the fact is that the gospel demands everything of all of us. If someone thinks the gospel is somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspirations, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. Mark 8, 34. If anyone wishes to come, anyone, anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, let him lay down his life, let him take up his cross, let him say his life is forfeit, and let him follow me. Mark 8, 34 means the playing field of human life is level at the cross. Completely level. It means that homosexuality is not ultimately a political thing. It's a discipleship thing. Either we deny ourselves or we don't. And the message is the same for everyone. And the cost 
is the same for everyone. And according to Jesus, so is the blessing. What is the blessing? Look at this sentence from Jesus, Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all, all, all of you who are weary and burdened, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The blessing is rest. Now, now a rest here, as Jesus talks about it, is not 12 hours of sleep every night. That'd be nice. But it's a state of well-being. It's a state of being content and secure and at peace with God. It's a sense of being deeply loved by God, of being confident in the sovereignty of God in darkness and in difficulty. Uh, Speaking personally, um, Rhonda and I both had this uh, sense of rest when our first spouses were dying. And my experience is that something tangible, life-giving, and miraculous. This rest that our Lord talks about is one of life's greatest blessings. And it's available to anyone, everyone, in Jesus Christ. So is God anti-gay? No. But God is against all of us who by nature follow our own desires. Who who by nature live for ourselves. And what you want if you are a follower of Jesus Christ for the homosexual is the exact same thing God wants for you. He wants you to die to yourself. To die to your desires, your, your, your sinful desires, your sinful attractions, and to live in obedience and holiness and submission to his lordship. And that 24-7. Now why do I start this way? I start with discipleship because if we understand Jesus' call to discipleship, then it produces in us a humility and a sense of dependence on our Lord and and a grace orientation that is central uh, to living as exiles. Going back to my message a couple of weeks ago at the start of this series. Now let me go on. What does the Bible teach about homosexuality? I want to say three things. The first is that the Bible teaches marriage as one man, one woman for life. We looked at this passage last week when I talked about marriage and singleness, but let's look at Matthew chapter 19. Haven't you read, uh, Jesus replied that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's going all the way back to the second chapter of Genesis and quoting Genesis 2.24. And then Jesus editorializes and he says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. No one separate. Now, in my conversations with Christians, with Christians 
who, who claim that the Bible doesn't forbid homosexual practice, uh, I have said, uh, okay, for the sake of argument, I'll grant you that. I'll grant you that for the moment. I happen to think it's wrong, but I'll, I'll grant you that. But, but the problem you had if you want to make a case that the Bible doesn't forbid homosexuality is that from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, the Bible consistently affirms that marriage is one man, one woman. A union of different but complementary sexes. And there are no exceptions when the Bible talks about marriage. Furthermore, this bringing together of different but complementary things is God's pattern in creation. So we go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and we discover God created the heavens and the different but complementary. God created light and darkness, different but complementary. Dry ground and the seas and male and female. Diverse, uh, unlike things that are made to unite and, and to create a whole that generates a, a stunning life and beauty through their diverse but complementary interaction. So homosexuality distorts the richness, distorts the glory. Uh, of the diversity and unity that is inherent in creation in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Now, the second thing the Bible teaches is that it tells us there is not a single instance in all of God's Word where God advocates or allows sex outside of marriage. Any sex outside any marriage, marriage between one man and a woman, not a single case in the Bible. So the Bible forbids prostitution, adultery, incest, sexual abuse, sexual violence, rape, sex with animals, sex with anyone who is not your husband or wife. In addition, the Bible forbids lust. It forbids seductive speech and joking, playing, and immodest or inappropriate dress. Look at this passage from Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Strong words. The third thing the, the Bible tells us, the, the Bible is very clear and that the Bible forget, forbids all homosexual practice. All, all of it. So Leviticus 18.22, to take an Old Testament passage, 
do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Now let's go to the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 1. We know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. Now, if I had time, and, and I don't, I would give you quotes from people, even biblical scholars, who affirm homosexuality. They're gay but they recognize that the Bible condemns it. They just don't care. What matters to them is their lifestyle. And my point is that there is no biblical case whatsoever for the Bible affirming homosexual practice of any sort, even within a monogamous relationship or marriage. The Christian faith will always be offensive to any culture at some point. This is where we're offensive. We find ourselves as offensive. And we get that. We understand that. Because we're un we understand we're exiles. As followers of Jesus Christ, we're exiles. So, let me keep moving. I began by talking about what is discipleship, this level playing field. And I looked briefly at what the Bible tells us uh, about homosexuality. And now what I want to do is, is go to four implications of this. And here's the first. Homosexuality is not a civil rights issue. It's just not. There is no scientific evidence that proves that homosexuality is linked to DNA or that there is a homosexual gene or, or, or that God makes uh, someone homosexual. But having said that, I want you to hear what I'm going to say next. And that is, I am not saying people choose homosexuality. For many people, like this young pastor, Sam Albury, or if you want to read uh, Wesley Hill's book, Washed and Waiting, it is an unwanted thing, an unpleasant intrusion into their life. Uh, so it's a, a, a complexity of nature and nurture, and in some cases, uh, culture. I mean, we live in a sinful, fallen world. We are sinful, fallen people. Homosexuality, like other sexual sins, is a part of the fall. However, what we have going on today in our larger culture, and the reason homosexuality is increasingly and widely accepted is because of our cultural values. What do I mean by that? Well, we have elevated individual freedom, autonomy, and personal fulfillment. as sort of dominant cultural values. And as a result, personal desires also get elevated to the highest level of moral authority in our culture, a civil right. This is what I desire, this is what I feel, it's my right. 
And here our culture is inconsistent, it's inconsistent parenthetically. I mean, we deny that right relative to murder. But not with most, some, but not with most sexual desires. And increasingly we are told that to deny homosexuality is akin to racism. But this hopelessly confuses the issues. It hopelessly confuses ethnic or racial identity with sexual desires. Ethnic racial identity is morally neutral. Skin color is not a matter of right and wrong. However, sexual activity is different. It's always morally chosen behavior. We need to separate the issues. The second implication. Homosexuality is not an identity issue. Now, if we say it's a right, then we confuse it with ethnicity. If we say it's identity, an identity, then we give desires and feelings a weight they cannot bear. Feelings never define you. You are always more than your your feelings. Uh, Feelings or desires must never be given priority over obedience or or commitment. When that happens in the marketplace, when your feelings take precedence over or dominant over your commitments, you know what we call that? We call that unemployment. And the only solution to our battles with uh, feelings, our, our feelings, is, is the gospel. I, I really like the way somebody else illustrated this once. Uh, imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior in brutal 800 A.D., This particular warrior has two strong inner impulses. The first is to kill people. People he doesn't like, people who don't respect him, enemies. The second strong, equally strong inner impulse is same-sex attraction. Now, living in a warrior culture, in a a brutal culture, he will identify with the first feeling and say, that's me. That's who I am. I I kill people. And then when it comes to this second impulse, uh, when he identifies with it, he'll say, I can't express this. Look around me. Instead of expressing it, I'm going to control it. That's life in 800 A.D. Now take that same man and put him in downtown San Francisco, New York City, Chicago today. He has the same two inner impulses. And he looks at his desire to kill, and he says, man, man if I, I do that, I'm going to end up spending my life in prison or, or worse. So I won't express that. I'll, I'll control that. 
and he looks at his same-sex attraction, looks around him and says, I'll express that. Now, what's the point? The point is we do not get our identity simply from within, from our feelings. Uh, instead, all of us, all, all of us, every single one of us have a moral grid that comes from culture, from background, from family, from friends, from TV, that we use to interpret our, our feelings. Well, I won't act on that. Better not. Oh, I'll act on that. Uh, that's okay. Now today, uh, what's happening around us is the Judeo-Christian grid is collapsing. And let me say uh, parenthetically, morality, standing for uh, morality in our culture, upholding morality in our culture matters because it's a part of us as the church being salt and light as we scatter. Morality matters. But we must understand that for there to be cultural renewal, there has to be heart renewal. And for there to be heart renewal, the only grid that makes that possible is the gospel. Because the gospel alone has the power uh, to break the back of the sinful, harmful desires that are resident in the human heart. And this is precisely what the New Testament tells us. Look at Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So a couple things going on. When Paul says you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified, he's describing being a born again. He describes what happens when we come to Jesus Christ and recognize our, recognize our sin is separated from God and that Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place for our sin and we embrace Christ by faith as our Savior. And as a result, in Paul's language, you're washed, you're, you're sanctified, uh, you're justified. And then he goes on and he says some of the people in the church in Corinth had been active homosexuals. In, in, his, in his language, Paul's language, uh, such were some of you. But no more. They've been washed, they've been forgiven, they've been set apart for God. The gospel had changed their lives. No matter how deeply, deeply ingrained it may be in someone's feelings or behavior, homosexual conduct is not inescapable. It's just not. Uh, but... <laughs> uh, it's the gospel. It's not rules. It's not morals. 
that alone gives us the power to not act on our attractions. That's exactly what Paul is showing. He's illustrating in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So what defined the Corinthians before they came to Christ no longer defines them now. Homosexuality is not a civil rights issue and it is not an identity issue. Third, if you are here and you are struggling with same-sex attraction, you are not alone, and you are more than welcome at Wheaton Bible Church. More than welcome. We long to be, Wheaton Bible Church longs to be a, a, a community that welcomes and accepts all those who hate their sin and struggle against it, war against it, fight against it. Even, that, even when that struggle involves failure and setback and loss and defeat. I mean, change is hard. Uh, change in the spiritual life in the kingdom of God is a very difficult thing. And we're up and down. We have good days and we have... Uh, Bad days, but we as a church exclude no one. No one. But anyone joining Wheaton Bible Church needs to know this is a place of transformation, of discipline, of learning, and of healing. <laughs> and it's not a place to be indulged. We can't do that. We will not soften the stances of the Bible. We just won't to, to win people to Jesus. Because it's not just those issues. Ultimately, it's Jesus that's offensive. And what are we going to do next? Give up the deity of Christ? So as somebody else has said, to, to back off the, the teachings of, of the Bible uh, uh, over issues our cultural finds of, uh, offensive is really for the church to wave the white flag to surrender on human flourishing, to give up. <laughs> it, it's to say the creator does not know what's best for creation. Oh no, well, the creator doesn't, creation knows what's best for creation. That's crazy. It is not cruel when Jesus Christ points out sin. Let me tell you what would be cruel. Is if Jesus said, oh, that's what you desire? Fine, go do it. We as a church face two dangers, two dangers. We can be unloving, you're not welcome here, we're better than you. Or we can be unclear, silent, soft, afraid. As Kevin DeYoung says in his excellent book, Homosexuality, we know that the legitimization of same-sex marriage by the Supreme Court this past summer means increasingly 
the delegitimization of all those who dare to deny it, to oppose it. We understand that. We understand the consequences. But we are exiles. And we understand we are always at odds with our culture. But we believe the gospel is the power of God to salvation. It's the gospel that changes people's lives, changes marriages, changes families, changes neighborhoods, changes workplaces, changes communities, and it can change cultures. And we believe the Bible teaches traditional marriage. And as a matter of fact, uh, that the, uh, as revealed in, in the Bible, traditional marriage is at the center of what causes cultures to flourish. Everything else is destructive. So in love and in humility, we will continue to stand for traditional marriage. And and hear me in this. We will pray like crazy that our own marriages, while never perfect, will be winsome and attractive so that we might be light in the darkness. Now, that was a little of a digression, okay? Now, let me come back to those of you that might be struggling with same-sex attraction. And over the years, I've talked to different people here in the church that, that struggle with that. And I've said, you're welcome here, we're delighted you're here, and you are not alone. I want to say three things real quickly. First of all, pray. If that's your struggle, pray. Bring your feelings to God. Talk to God God, uh, about it. Ask God for wisdom. Uh, Claim some of the promises in God's word. Let me show you one. I love this one. James chapter 5 and verse 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously unto all. Now notice the next three words, without finding fault. And it will be given to you. Our bosses find fault. Our friends find fault. Sometimes our spouses find fault. Our kids find fault. But if you know Jesus Christ, he's not going to find fault. God is not going to find fault with you in this struggle. If you know Jesus Christ, there is no sin that is unforgivable, right? No sin. Second, pray and think biblically. Second, think biblically. Saturate your mind, your life, better your life, with God's words. What the Bible says about homosexuality is not the only thing the Bible says to homosexuals. It's not even the main thing. The main thing is the gospel. Saturate your mind with the words of the gospel. Memorize passages that elevate God's grace. Saturate your mind with the word of God. Third, seek thick community. Not thin, not superficial, but thick community. Because it's in thick community, according to the New Testament, that our distance between ourselves and God becomes thin. 
Look at this uh, story Albury tells. Uh, Single Christians often miss companionship, having people to do nothing with. One of the kindest gifts I received was from a family I popped around. Now he's British, okay? Don't you love that? I popped around to visit quite often. I was about to move away, and as a leaving present, they gave me a small wrapped box. What was inside was neither big nor expensive, and yet it meant the world to me, a spare key to their house. It was a wonderful affirmation. Uh, What is thick community? It's married couples giving singles in the church the key to their house. It's singles giving married couples the key to their house. You need a night away from the parents? Have dinner at my place. It's open, honest communication. It's, It's doing life together. So I've said three things. I've said, first of all, homosexuality is not a civil rights issue. It's not an identity issue. And if you struggle with same-sex attraction, man, we are glad you are here. You are welcome here, and you are not alone. And the final thing I want to say has been driven into me by our own Christopher Yuan, who happens to be one of the country's leading evangelical experts in this area. And this is a church. He just happens to be on the road all the time speaking on this subject all around the country, all around the world. And what Chris has driven into me has to do with our goal. What is our goal in this conversation with people in the lifestyle, people who give themselves to homosexual practice? Our goal is not heterosexuality. Our goal is not even marriage. The goal is holiness. Holiness. As I said last week when I talked about marriage and singleness, the Bible is both pro-marriage and pro-single. Singleness, singlehood. Jesus and Paul were both what? Single. Some people will come to Christ out of homosexuality, out of a homosexual practice background, that lifestyle, and they will marry heterosexually. Rosaria Butterfield, in her two books, is a wonderful example of this. She was formerly a lesbian leftist English professor at Syracuse University. She came to Christ, and she's married. Married to a pastor. Great story. But some people will come out of that lifestyle, and they won't marry. Sam Alberry, Wesley Hills are authors that come to mind, that tell their stories openly, but have stayed celibate and single. Christopher Yuan has said from this pulpit, our goal isn't marriage, it's holiness. And I fear, frankly, that if Jesus and Paul were to walk in here on a given Sunday after some of you would talk to him, you might say to him, why in the world aren't you married? And Jesus would smile and say, you know, I'm really okay. I think I'm okay. Might say, why do you idolize marriage so much? Marriage and singleness are both wonderful gifts, but there will be no marriage in heaven. As followers of Christ, we will be wed to the Lamb of God. Jesus himself. 
And if we're going to seek the flourishing of the communities around us, it's going to start here in the church, in this area, with God giving us the grace to celebrate and honor godly men and women in our church who seek to glorify God in their singleness, right? All right, let me conclude. I want to appeal to you to look to Jesus. If we are going to have the stomach to stand uh, stand with the Bible, uh, even to stand against family members or, or close friends, if we are going to have the stomach to welcome hurting and broken people into our lives, if we're going to have the stomach to give ourselves to open network, open relationships, open groups, and open life where we're welcoming, if we're going to have the stomach to lay down our lives for the sake of those that don't know Christ, heterosexual, homosexual, if we're going to have the stomach to stand in our culture as salt and light in a culture that increasingly disdains us, We must look to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us discernment? Would you give us grace that we might honor you? For Jesus' sake, We want you to work. We want you to speak to us. We want you to change us, to recalibrate us, to help us. Give us that mercy, Father. We plead for mercy to live in a world like ours that we might honor you. Amen.